Our scripture text today come to us first from the Gospel according to Luke, the 11th chapter, beginning at the ninth verse. Hear the word of God. Jesus is speaking and says, So I say to you, ask and it will be given you. Search and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened for you. For everyone who asks receives, and everyone who searches finds, and for everyone who knocks, the door will be opened. Is there anyone among you who, if your child asks for a fish, will give a snake instead of a fish? Or if the child asks for an egg, will give a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Our second lesson is from the Gospel according to John, the 13th chapter, verses 1 through 11. Now, before the festival of the Passover, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from this world and go to the Father, and having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The devil had already put it into the heart of Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, to betray him. And during supper, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God, got up from the table, took off his outer robe, and tied a towel around himself. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was tied around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, uh, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus answered, you do not know what I am doing, but later you will understand. And Peter said to him, you will never wash my feet. And Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, one who has bathed does not need to wash except for the feet, but is entirely clean. And you are clean, though not all of you. For he knew who was to betray him. For this reason, he said, not all of you are clean. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. By your grace and through your mercy, we pray, O Lord, that you will allow these words to come to point to the word just read and to the word made flesh in Jesus the Christ, where we pray this in his name. Amen. Those of you who know me know that my favorite page in the newspaper is the obituary page. <clears throat> Hard to understand why people don't think that I'm the life of the party. My fondness for the obit page is for a couple of reasons. First, I go to the obituaries to check to see that I'm not there. That's always a good start to the day. But second, I go to the obituary page to read the fascinating summaries of people's lives. A, a good obituary editorial staff knows how to find interesting people and tell their interesting stories in just a few paragraphs. And most obituaries end up in good newspapers because of some defining moment in a person's life, something the person did that defined them, that made them noteworthy. 
I remember reading years ago the obituary of Hugh Thompson. I don't imagine that name rings a bell, but I do know that another name will ring a bell for some of us, William Calley, Lieutenant William Calley, the lead perpetrator of one of the darkest days of the Vietnam War, the My Lai Massacre. Up to 500 civilian Vietnamese were killed by Lieutenant Calley and his subordinates over 50 years ago. More would have been killed had a 24-year-old chief warrant officer, helicopter pilot, not flown upon the scene and seen from his helicopter the massacre taking place. Hugh Thompson landed his helicopter and began rescuing the women and children from his own compatriots putting himself in between the Americans and the South Vietnamese. He ordered many to be airlined to safety. He confronted the higher-ranking Cali and insisted it stop. He went back to the base and began alerting the high command about what he had witnessed. After attempts to cover it up, the massacre came to light, and Hugh Thompson was called to testify. When he returned to the States, he was demonized for having ratted out his fellow officers scorned by his hometown, considered a coward, and found dead animals left at his doorstep. But he had drawn the line, stood up against his own army, stood in front of the defenseless, and it took 30 years, 30 years, for the nation to realize that Thompson was actually a hero and awarded him the Soldier's Medal for, Medal for Heroism. In 2004, two years before his death, he told the Associated Press, don't do the right thing looking for a reward because it might not come. Just do the right thing. Country songs and piano concertos have been written in honor and in memory of Hugh Thompson. It was, shall we say, his defining moment. When the Bible writers tell us the story of Jesus, like any effort to tell anyone's story, they, they had a lot to choose from. Jesus lived into his early 30s, raised in the northern part of Israel, helped out his father in his carpenter shop, presumably studied the Torah, and then began an itinerant ministry of preaching and teaching. He traveled from town to town and was known to have healed people and angered people. No good deed goes unpunished. He got caught up in a religious power play, falsely accused for sedition, and before anyone could mount the courage to defend him, was tried, convicted, sentenced, and executed. There's a lot to write about when it comes to this rabbi and self-professed Messiah, so it is of note that when the Bible writers write about Jesus, they focus most of their attention on what appears to be Jesus' defining moment, which is his last week. From Palm Sunday and his entering into the epicenter of worship and religion, Jerusalem, to teach and model the way and life of love. This last week is Jesus' defining moment. Pay close attention to what Jesus says and does in this week, the Bible writers tell us, because this is who Jesus is. This is his defining moment. 
which I suppose in so many words is what John the gospel writer tells us when he tells us of that faithful night when the shadows of betrayal and conspiracy are falling upon Jesus and his disciples. His teaching on love has largely met deaf ears and the powers are now orchestrating his demise. In this very moment, John, in these verses we just read, tells us that the Father had given all things into Jesus' hands had given all things into Jesus' hands, meaning that this was his moment. It was his moment to do as he pleased. The power and the choice was his. He could mount a counterattack. He could run into the desert. He could blame it all on somebody else. He could say it was just one big misunderstanding. He could take back his words. Whatever he would do would be his defining moment. It would tell us who Jesus was. So John tells us that with the power of God within him and with the chance to do whatever he pleased, Jesus took a basin of water and a towel and he washed the feet of his fickle and faithless friends. If you want to know what this whole Jesus thing is about, John says, this is what it's about. The humble and sacrificial love of God. This is how Jesus responds to the chaotic and tragic and random and self-serving world. Jesus bends down and serves because this is who God is. This is the defining moment, which explains how later, when Jesus gets nailed to the cross and left hanging there in the deepest pain any of us could ever imagine, the Bible writer tells us that while his executioners were taunting him to exercise God's power to jump down from the cross and save himself, when all things were in his nailed and bloody hands, Jesus chose to forgive the ones who had driven the spikes. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing, which explains those days, weeks, months, and years after the resurrection of Jesus when the followers of Jesus start trying to live like Jesus lived. They start praying that the Holy Spirit of Jesus would fill them and cause them to live like Jesus lived, to take their towels and their basins into village after village and wash people's feet and forgive people's sins and teach them the way, the truth, and the life of love. So in a very real sense, what the Bible writers seem to be telling us is that, we're, we're, is that when we are trying to understand what power God has, what, what choice God makes when God is seeking to influence the world, what actions God takes when he has the chance to control the flow of events, it will always be found in the movements of love. That in the defining moment in Jesus, when folks were counting on him to take matters into his own hands, God in Christ takes the smelly, dusty feet of his betrayers in hand and washes them. God does not choose to move the chess pieces. God does not intervene to make someone do this or as opposed to that. God does not snap God's fingers and pull a rabbit out of a hat, but instead, God draws close to both friend and foe and washes feet and forgives. And in loving and in washing and in forgiving, God brings about salvation. God brings 
healing to a hurting world. John the epistle writer says that God is love and those who abide in love abide in God and God abides in them. If you want to understand the nature and the power and the movement of God, you will find it in the agape, in the self-sacrificing love of God. This is how God influences the world, by surrendering his right to control events and instead bending low and loving us in our lowest places. He emptied himself, Paul writes, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Which I suppose is what the Bible would wish us to have in mind when we try to interpret and understand Jesus' teaching on prayer. Uh, a lot of people have lots of opinions about prayer. The bookstores are full of books on prayer. And a lot of people have lots to say about prayer and how prayer works and what results they get from prayer. And it seems the longer I hear and read people talk about prayer, the further it seems to get away from Jesus. I hear a lot about the power of prayer, as if the power of God is to be found inside our prayers, which I suppose is another way of saying that the power resides with us and not with God, and, and that it's confusing to me because it seems the Bible says that the power always belongs to God. We have this treasure in clay jars, Paul writes, so that it may be made clear that the extraordinary power belongs to God and does not come from us. Now, when we see power to God, sometimes I wonder if we want God's power to look like and to act like the power we might employ if the power had been given to us. Lord, give me this, give me that. If you've got the power, then use it the way I would use it. Find me a parking spot, give my kid into the college of her choice, help me make this sale, like the devil telling Jesus to turn stones into bread, and Jesus says, it's not what I do. It's not my power. When my mother laid in a hospital bed at the age of 63, and the doctor told us that her organs were beginning to shut down, I buried my head in my hands and I prayed like I never prayed before, that God would do something, that God would step in, God would snap God's fingers, reverse the course of the disease, spare her so she could meet the child Amanda and I were bringing into the world in five short months. And hours later, she breathed her last. And I got angry and I said, you know God, I don't think I was asking for too much. A buddy of mine prayed for his father a few weeks ago and his father got better. So what gives? If you had put things into my hands, I would have snapped my fingers and the world would be operating according to the wishes and desires of Steve McConnell, which would be a scary thing, as you can imagine. And it was my anger that for quite a while didn't have really any interest in the nature of God and the teachings of Jesus on prayer. 
It was my anger that kept me long from looking at what Jesus says at the end of our text in Luke today. If you then, Jesus says, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? How much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Give the what? Give the Holy Spirit? Oh dear, I finally said to myself, that's the clue that's been staring me in the face since when I learned to sing Jesus Loves Me. In whose name am I supposed to pray? I am to pray in the name of Jesus. I am to pray in the Holy Spirit of Jesus, in the spirit of the rabbi who kneels and scrubs dirty feet. What am I to pray for? What is the power I'm to yearn for? What is the action of God I petition for? The indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the loving spirit of Jesus, the agape, self-sacrificing, humble spirit of Jesus through which God exercises God's power. This loving spirit who does not control the events the way I want them controlled, does not move us around the chessboard the way I want everybody moved, does not snap his fingers and perform the tricks I want performed, does not turn stones into bread, but this loving spirit of Jesus who exercises his power with a towel and a basin and with a plea from the cross that the likes of me might be forgiven. This is primarily, it seems, how Jesus chooses to control events. This is how Jesus heals. This is how Jesus changes the course of my history and your history, by loving us and inviting us with that same love to love others. Does that get me what I want when I want it? Not usually. Does that prevent terrible things from happening? Not usually. Does that give little comfort to a young father-to-be praying for his dying mother? Not usually. Should we still pray for those things? Of course, in the loving, serving, Holy Spirit of Jesus, Jesus, ask, seek, and knock, of course, hoping most of all for the loving, serving Holy Spirit of Jesus to come and display love's power. For God's answer to all our prayers is to give us the most powerful force in the world, the love of God, which does in fact change lives, which does in fact heal people, which does in fact free us from the crushing weight of guilt, which does give us the joy of loving somebody else, which allows us the greatest of all gifts, according to the apostle, the gift of love. We all know Tolstoy's great short story of the Russian cobbler named Martin who grieves the death of his wife and wonders what the remaining days of his life are for, what is the purpose of life without her. But a certain wise man inspires him to find a copy of the scriptures to read, which he does in his long stretches of solitary time. He finds compelling the story of the Pharisee who is not welcoming of the sinning woman. One night he receives a vision that the Christ will appear to him the next day. So the next day he waits for the appearing Christ. He waits for the appearances of Jesus. And while he waits, he notices a laborer outside his shop shoveling snow. 
He invites the laborer in to have a hot drink and a warm conversation and sends him on his way. A couple of hours later, through his window, he sees a young mother trying to cover up her new child from the cold. Martin invites the men and gives them warmer clothes to battle the elements. Finally, he sees a young boy steal an orange from a clerk and runs and intercedes and handles both victim and thief with unmerited grace. Later in the evening, as he drifts off to sleep, he wonders why Jesus had not visited him that day. And in his dream, God speaks and says, did you not see me in the laborer, the mother, and the thief? I visited Martin, and you received me well. So it makes me think of my friend Jack Jack was one of the nicest guys in the world, just a great guy, a heart as big as the state of Florida, a guy that had his priorities straight and adored his family and made sure they knew he adored them. So when cancer came to Jack's life far too early and the treatments failed and our hope and prayers were not met, I called Jack, who at that time was a couple states away in a hospital bed, and it was a bad day. He was hurting, he was sad, and he was angry. So where is God, he asked, this God of whom you preach? I prayed, you prayed, and this is where we are. I take no credit for what I said. I said the only thing I could think to say. I said, where are you, Jack? He said, you know where I am. I'm in the hospital bed. And I said, who's there, Jack? My family, he said, my wife, my daughter, my son. The most important people in the world to you, Jack? Do you think God is in them, in their love, in their presence, in their prayers, passing you water to drink, wiping your brow? On the other end of the line, silence and then tears and then a quiet, sustained cry. I suppose so, he said. Maybe this is where God is, right here. With towel and basin and all things in his hands, God comes and serves and forgives and heals in cobblers soldiers, sons, and daughters. God comes and serves and forgives and heals, for this is God's defining moment.